Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at visitsanjuans.com. Set your mind to island time. Welcome to Friday, everybody. A very northwest, cloudy, and drizzly Friday. Oh, it is a beauty. And welcome to the Week in Review. I'm your host, Zeki Hamid. I'm in for Bill Radke today, and I'm here to ready to catch you up on the news of the week. Maybe there's something you missed. Maybe there's something you want to make sense of. Or maybe, just maybe, this is your Friday routine where you listen to KUW are making paper mache. Who knows? It's a very diverse area, right? My panelists today and my guests, uh, I'm so happy that they're here with us. Investigations editor from the Seattle Times, Jonathan Martin. Hey, Jonathan, how you doing? Hey, thank you. And political analyst and contributing columnist, Joni Balters. Nice to see you, Joni. It's so great to see you, Zeki. And deputy editor for Seattle Met Magazine, Allison Williams. Hey, Allison. It's good to be here. And, of course, we are streaming on YouTube and Facebook. If you are a little bit more of a visual learner, just go to our YouTube channel or our Facebook channel right there, and uh, you can uh, take a look there. And if you've missed any part of this show, you could always bring it up on the W, uh, w hello, on the Week in Review podcast or on KUOW.org. So you do have options. All right, let's get on with the show. Our first story today, President Joe Biden announced plans Wednesday to cancel $10,000 in federal student loan debt for millions of Americans. That amount goes up to $20,000 for students who have received Pell Grants, which are reserved for undergraduate students with the greatest financial need. Biden also extended the pandemic pause on federal student loan payments one last time until the end of 2022. The pause was set to expire August 31st. This could benefit hundreds of thousands of Washingtonians as we have over 780,000 residents with student loan debt. By the way, if you want to see a breakdown of student loan debt obligations for Washington residents, all you need to do is just check out KUW's Instagram account. There's some really cool explainers there. Okay, before we get to the politics of this move, uh, I want to know who benefits the most from this. Jonathan, what do you think? I think families with the Pell, the Pell Grants, uh, um, with going up to $20,000, certainly will benefit poor kids. Uh, and certainly in professions where the wages are lower and the, and the uh, cost of servicing a loan is uh, more of a burden. Um, but, you know, it's, it is, a, it is a, a broad benefit. The income threshold is relatively high. Uh, it's $125,000 for an individual and two fifty dollars for a family. So I think about this and we talk about middle-class families, you know, sort of Washington, Seattle, middle-class families, um, frankly, are at a higher income bracket than what middle-class would be defined as elsewhere in the country because of our extraordinary cost of housing. So this is going to have a big benefit to um you know, I think I saw there was four or five hundred thousand kids with pub with federally held student loan debt in Washington. It's a ton of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, you wrote actually something about that's interesting in an email uh, previously uh, to me. Uh, you talked about the high tuition and high aid model of colleges, and I was wondering if you can just touch on that a little bit. Yes, this is a, a model, particularly public universities have gone to private ones as well, where they the uh, average um, tuition increase has gone up about 8% a year. So if you think about what that means, it's like over the course of nine years, the cost of tuition double. But to backfill that for making accessible for a lo- lower income families and lower middle income families, uh, Washington does an extraordinarily good job of having a lot of financial aid. Uh, at, at lower income brackets, you can go to the University of Washington for free. Uh, so there, the idea being that there are families out there that are able to pay a very high tuition bill because um, we have a lot of rich folks in America. Mm-hmm. Um, but you um, backfilling that the financial aid reaches it to somewhat lower um, lower the bill, but it's caused a lot of consternation for middle class families where you're uh, not quite at that not making enough money to really be able to take a you know some private universities for seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year in just in tuition. Um, and those costs are out of reach. So the high tuition, high financial aid model is um, something that a lot of uh, 
universities have gone to, but uh, I think it has a lot of unintended consequences, particularly for middle-class families. Yeah. Allison, what do you think of the argument that this is unfair to people who work their tails off to not go into college debt? I feel that there's been a lot of resentment out there. You know, I, I saw that too. I mean, these days you see the reaction to major political moves a lot online, and that can be a dangerous place to to read the pulse of uh, the community around you, for sure. <laughs> you mean Twitter's uh, not a real thing? Is not a real world? <laughs> well, I think it's it's where we go to to sometimes right. uh, talk about and sometimes in really strong language. So, you know, I tried to. I, I think I personally was very happy to see this happen. See us start to address the student loan issues in the country. I saw some people really strike back and say, I paid for mine. You should take it. If, if you take out a loan, you should have to pay it back. And I try to leave a little bit of space to understand that that reaction from somebody who did have it hard, who did work really hard to pay off their loans is feeling a little bit of consternation right now. And maybe is not seeing and thinking about the hard that they had was a lot easier than the hard today that somebody who's got a lot of student loan debt would probably trade tuition prices, they'd probably trade cost of living when they came out of college and the job opportunities to somebody who paid back their loans 10, 20, 30 years ago. So, you know, I, I try to understand that people are responding you know, emotionally. Money is a very you know personal thing. And the people who worked off their debt should, should be proud of that. And they might feel a little, uh, you know, conflicted about seeing some people get a little bit of relief. I'm hoping as the time wears on and we see how important this is to a lot of people. And one great thing I saw, there's a writer who lives up um, in North Washington named Anne Helen Peterson. And online, she just immediately started collecting stories of people who were hugely relieved by this, who are going to be able to pay off, you know, the rest of their loans themselves easily. Now they're going to be able to start a family. They're going to be able to take care of aging parents and that reacted in a, just a, a really positive way. And she put those out there. And I thought that was really great to see because I didn't just want to see the flood of people saying, eh, who's getting free money? I'm upset about this. It was really cool to just immediately see people reacting and talking about how they're going to be able to change their life. And, you know, there's a whole generation of people who are not able to buy houses, not able to have kids that just starting to address that debt might be able to change that, move the needle just a little bit. Jody, what do you think about the uh, the politics of this? Is this smart politics on the Democratic side, or is it going to hurt them in the midterms? I think it's really good politics. I mean, it's sort of like, how dare Joe Biden do what he said he would do on the campaign trail? He had a promise. He said he was going to you know, relieve something like $10,000 of student debt. And then, oh, no, he relieved student debt aimed and targeted at the middle class, and people just go bananas here. And I'm so glad to hear Allison, you describing people, let's tell a few of the good stories here, because, you know, look, Joe Biden can almost never buy a break here. Uh, You have some people, some individuals, some Democrats who are still going nuts that, you know, it's not more money. You have Republicans going nuts, no matter what, that he's increasing inflation. This is a guy, you know, targeting something very specifically to the middle class. In fact, yesterday, the New York Times came out with this analysis Who's going to benefit from this? And this is nationwide. And as everybody's been pointing out, of course, we have different numbers here uh, in Washington state. But uh, the benefits, they say, are going to fall squarely on the middle class. Uh, they, They rounded up a few independent analyses and said the people eligible for debt relief are disproportionately young and black. And then another stat I saw somewhere said roughly half of Latino student debt, just as an example, is going to be forgiven. So, you know, I guess Joe Biden should apologize for helping the middle class. But, you know, that's that's absurd. So, yeah, it's a good campaign issue um, for the Democrats. And, and you've already discussed the numbers of people who are directly affected. Could it be higher? Well, I guess you could go to a congresswoman from. Pramila Jayapal's Twitter account, and I just said the word Twitter, sorry for that, because that's a a kind of a nasty place on this topic right now. But, you know, yesterday, or whenever it was announced, she was, hey, big news, very excited. And then, uh, you know, pulling back a little and trying to go for the whole thing that she'd been calling for by by this morning. But that's okay. That's that's what, you know, if you're a progressive like she is, you want to keep keep pushing for the for the number that you wanted. But I think, hey, can we just give Joe Biden one thing? Way to go. You, you, you offered a campaign promise and you delivered and it's targeted to the middle class. And by the way, that's how he won. 
his election by talking endlessly about the middle class. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yeah, go you know, for it's, it. it you, since you mentioned Twitter, just uh, something that's a, a little entertaining out there, where some uh, GOP uh, Congress folks that that have called out or you know criticized this move only to have the White House uh, clap back at them, so to speak, and uh, say that they had a bunch of PPP loans forgiven, so they should probably <laughs> not be talking about that. So like it's Marjorie a little Taylor entertaining. Green. I think Twitter's toxic, but it is uh, entertaining at times. You know, I, I do want to uh, mention that we, we have this uh, thing called the Community Feedback Club, which is a way for people to text in. Uh, answers to certain questions. And we asked yesterday, how does this news impact you or your family? And how did the prospect of debt factor into your decisions of whether to go to college or not? Just a a few answers here. Don says, uh, I'm not affected, but I think it would have been smarter to cancel something like medical debt, mostly unavoidable or unpredictable. Uh, I do have immense compassion for students today, though. My niece is shouldering over $200,000 in debt in California, in Berkeley. So uh, that's Don. And uh, somebody else wrote in says, we're very happy to hear this campaign promise has now been fulfilled. Just like you said, Joni, right there. So somebody's happy about that. Uh, Jonathan Lake City says, because my wife and I have graduate school loans, what was announced doesn't make a huge difference in what we owe, but I'm grateful to know that millions of people are getting life-changing relief. I look forward to the day that medical and school debt is all abolished. So if anybody wants to join this community feedback club, all you need to do is go to uh, kw.org slash feedback, or you can just text the word club to 206-926-9955. That's the word club to 206-926-9955. We'll send you a text about once a week asking you for your thoughts on uh, some of these things. Uh, Anything else on this? Anything that's missing from this move that the White House announced? Uh, Anything that we should be doing looking at uh yeah go ahead Jonathan. I, I think what's really missing is the cost controls for universities uh and there was some conversation about that and the going to allison's point about sort of a way back when uh it was uh you know i, I did it a bootstrap my way into this i found a stat that in 1980 you could earn your way into a uh, average public university with seven weeks of minimum wage today that's six months of work mm, okay Joey? so i just add to that i think that and, and this isn't new or different than anyone else has said but i i think we should point it out that uh universities and tuition and the way they charge is wide open for disruption if you want to look at areas that are ready for disruption. I mean, the amount that's charged, the amount of student debt you had in the news before we started, just somebody who just had too much debt to actually make some of the progress that Biden was talking about. And, you know, so we we have to look at that. That's that's a next step. And so if the student loan argument that's raging across the country for this moment, um, if something good is to come up, come from it, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how much we charge and how much how much we burden the students that come through. Allison? And I think one thing to remember is there's the argument the saying that students shouldn't have taken the risk of taking out this much money. There's a huge risk in not going to college in this country as well. The number of jobs that require a bachelor's degree, I, I have seen numbers, I don't know them off the top of my head, it has gone up uh, over the past couple of decades. So a student who takes out an immense amount of debt is possibly still making the right you know, choice for their long-term success, because not doing that is not a particularly easy or guaranteed path either. So I think, you know, the thing I keep thinking about is in during the pandemic, we took out aid and we addressed it to people in crisis, businesses and individuals who needed money. This is a crisis. So of course, it's not going to go to every single person in the country. It's going to the people in the most crisis. Yeah. You know, there is also just this argument that because you bring up a really good point because i think of certain jobs that require bachelor's degrees and i don't understand why they're requiring it it doesn't really very much it's not parallel to what the job is actually all about so sometimes i just see those things requiring bachelor's degree and i and i just don't understand why yeah well one of the stats i saw is that 36 percent of registered voters are college educated so you know you can understand why even though it's it's delivering on a campaign promise, it's it may not be the most popular move a president could make, mm-hmm. and, and that'll that'll trickle down to other um, you know congressional races and things like that. Right. 
You know, there is one more thing about this before we move on. Uh, just looking at, I was curious about the amount of people that were actually benefit from this in Washington, and about uh, almost about seventy five percent owe about forty grand or less. So there is some significant relief for about seventy five percent of borrowers in Washington State. So not a whole lot of people that have a hundred. Only about seven point six percent have a hundred thousand dollars or above in debt. So this this will definitely make uh, a a big dent. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and talk about something else right now. We're going to talk about a little politics here. Uh, We'll continue, I guess, talking about politics. But it seems that every election cycle, there are two reoccurring headlines. One, (laughs) voter turnout is abysmal. (laughs) And two, this is the most important election of our lifetime. I think both are kind of exaggerated. In fact, we had a pretty decent turnout for a midterm primary election. I was reading a piece by Danny Westney from the Seattle Times about this, and he mentioned that Washington had the third highest voter turnout after Wyoming and Kansas. So, uh, Joni, what do you think the reason is for this high turnout in Washington? Well, for one thing, mail voting. We make it so easy for you to vote. Uh, you know, all you have to do is really carry the, the envelope to your table and then back out to the mailbox. So that's it's pretty easy. Uh, and, you know, the big election process story this year is that there's no election process story. Right. So, hmm. you know, we had some interesting races and um, I think people believe in our election system. There's a, a stat that that's out there, um, a study done in 2018, I think, of the um congressional races that year and some of the others, uh, the fraud rate was 0.004%. So people believe in our election system here. There's been a lot of attacking of it. But even Lauren Culp, the election denier Lauren Culp running over there in the fourth, uh, didn't didn't blame um, the Secretary of State's office for his loss. He blamed other Republicans. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. Um, You know, this is, there's been a huge, huge, undermining of our democracy with people saying don't believe in elections essentially like if you don't trust it that's almost a don't participate kind of thing Mm -hmm. but you know this is basically good news for washington state because people even though the the summer took a long time to come uh and the primary occurs in in august of all times People participated at a, at a pretty decent rate. You'd rather it be 50%, of course, but compared to the other states, we're number three out of 44. We'll take mm-hmm. it. So there, I want to talk a little bit about the third district, which is uh, currently uh, Jamie Herrera Butler is is a representative from there. Uh, she's one of 10 Republican representatives who voted for the impeachment of President Trump after January 6th. She lost her reelection bid in the third district, setting up an election between Republican Joe Kent and Democrat Marie Glusenkamp Perez. The third district is quite red. Uh, is this a runaway for Joe Kent, or does Marie Glusenkamp Perez have a chance, Jonathan? Yeah, um, yeah. The district hasn't gone for a Democrat since 2008, and Herrera Butler has been pretty well easily reelected over time. Uh, however, uh, Joe Kent is not a Jamie Herrera Butler type uh, Republican. He's uh, in. He's got uh, ties pretty well-known ties to some uh, extremist groups like the Proud Boys. Uh, he's an election denier. Uh, I have to say, too, he's also, uh, I don't know if you've seen a picture of him, he's extraordinarily good-looking, like movie star good-looking, which is, he looks always like helps he, uh, in politics. He just walked off the set of uh, Yellowstone. This yeah, to- totally. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he's got on a, the he, set. I, I, either way. He's got a, a really tremendous personal story for a politician. His wife was um, killed in uh, overseas, uh, serving in military. He was served in the military. Uh, and so um, he's a, um, he's an interesting candidate. That's really, it's really, that race to me kind of looks like the sort of the soul of the Republican party. Um, Washington has typically been, the Republicans in Washington have typically been uh, more moderate, kind of more mainstream. Um, if Joe Kent gets in, he would easily be the most extreme uh, politician, at least on the Republican side um, that we've elected in since I can think of. Uh, so uh, I think the the challenge here, by the way, I want to make one point about the Trump elect. You mentioned the 10 Trump um, Trump Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. Right. The only one that made it through was uh, Dan Newhouse in eastern Washington. And it was a lot of it was made to that that this Washington's unique primary was the top two primary. We don't have closed party primaries like most other places have. 
Um, Jamie Herbert Butler lost to Joe Kent in a squeaker. It was very close. So I think it was really interesting that um, Joe Kent also kind of benefited from the, the way the, the primary is set up here. Um, anyway, uh, it's interesting for the rest of the, uh, we'll talk about voting reforms across the country. If you want to kind of think about, um, dealing with, uh, extremist candidates, the top two, um, maybe as a way of, uh, of mitigating that. Interesting. Uh, Allison, what, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, it's definitely a race that I'm, I'm going to be following with interest. I grew up in uh, Olympia, which is sort of the bottom end of the sort of kind of Pugetopolis, I don't know, you know, uh, metropolis that we have going sort of Seattle and the outlying cities. It is a very, very liberal uh, block and our counties, you know, most of the population is in those Western parts. And then if you go south, sort of south of Olympia, you know, down to Centralia, Chehalis, down where the, the third is. It's Western Washington, but it definitely has a different tenor, but it is also changing like a lot of Washington. We have a lot of uh, people moving outside of the very expensive Seattle area. And I I do think we are seeing a little bit of change down sort of in the Vancouver area. And I'm curious to see if that's going to change uh, the historic voting that we see down there. Um, I, I think that it's going to be a really hard race to win. I'm not expecting to see uh Perez come come ahead, but I think it's possible. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be fascinating next month or two. Yeah, Joni? I just wanted to add that, um, you know, it's Republican, but it's like something like plus 4.5%. And I'll give you an example, I think was in um, 2018, Carolyn Long, a strong Democrat, Democrat lost to Jamie Herrera Butler by 52-47. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's not far right. It, it, for years, it was kind of quirky, and it could be uh, purple. Uh, more recently, because Jamie Herrera Butler's been there a while, it's it's been uh, Republican. But I think this could be a surprise. You know, if if everything aligns, and, and it probably doesn't, but a surprise Democratic pickup. And this is very much dependent on whether the Democratic Party sees it as a potential pickup, and because of the far far right politics of Joe Kent, and then comes in and puts the money in to. Um, sort of do justice to a campaign for somebody who is not well known, uh, but is also not like a scary left Democrat to that district. Mm-hmm. She's 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 pretty um, authentic to use the everybody's favorite word, like authentic, like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania or something like that. You know, uh, she owns an auto repair shop with her husband. She likes um, she's some kind of a axe throwing uh, champion. Uh, you know, she lives in rural Skamania County. You know, she's not v- very far left, mm-hmm. but Joe Kent is very far right. And so I do think, as you folks have been saying, this really is a battle for the soul of the Republican Party, because do we really want somebody who the night um, after the FBI went into Mar-a-Lago said, uh, you know, the war begins? What war? What war? Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me? Are you at war with our own country? Mm-hmm. Joe Kent, uh, this is a guy, and don't think this this isn't a factor. We learned that it is the abortion ruling. He's he's you know an absolutist against abortion. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that fits that district. So if the Democratic Party wants this pickup, and it's not going to be easy, that's for sure. And if they bring the money in here, you could have a surprise there. Yeah, you could have well, a surprise. definitely a, a, a one to watch uh, there as the election is coming right up. All right, we're going to take a, a quick sh- break here, and we're going to be right back. We're going to talk about downtown and the return to the office. Maybe. We'll see. Welcome back to the Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid. I'm in for Bill Radke. And with me today are Jonathan Martin from Seattle Times, political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter, and deputy editor for Seattle Met Magazine, Allison Williams. So if and when Seattle workers return to the office is something that we've talked about many times on this show, and there's a good reason we keep talking about it, we seem to have this notion that people will eventually go back. 
But in downtown Seattle, offices are just 42 percent as full as they were before COVID-19, according to the latest data from the Downtown Seattle Association. That's an improvement over the previous four months when it averaged 35 percent. So much of life has gone back to what it used to be or what it used to look like in 2019. I mean, concerts and sports games are selling out. People are out, etc. So what's the holdup with working in the office? Anybody can uh, can take that one if you want. Go ahead, Johnny. Well, I'll say remote work is something um, we're still figuring out, but people are finding it incredibly um, helpful to their daily lives uh, with gas prices increasing, but now they're finally going down. But that was a factor in some of the numbers that you've seen already. People are reluctant to give up this absolute fabulous perk. Uh, you know, so the companies, and, and this is, this is kind of how I, I follow it, uh, sounds like to me, Amazon doesn't seem to have any pressing plans to require people to come back. So right now, if, if you know about this, Amazonians, you know, you come to the office if your manager or your team decides to come back. And so, for example, nobody comes in on Fridays. Thursdays are, are a big day, busier. But, come, you know, employees are not coming back uh, two or three days a week and staying there all day, waiting for the commute home. I mean, COVID changed a lot of things. And this is one of them. People really experienced this. Uh, you know, they, they have benefited from the savings of not having to pay parking, the gas, as I mentioned. And so companies are still trying to figure out what should they do. An example of that would be um, using Amazon again, but they pause construction on a building in Bellevue. They're trying to figure out what the return to office, if it ever comes, is going to look like. Uh, Microsoft also... Um, ended a lease uh, in Bellevue. So the companies themselves are afraid to, to order employees back because, and I've talked to a couple of them just this week, um, employees still hold the upper hand. And as long as they hold the upper hand, a lot of them, not all of them, because a lot of people like the workplace, but a lot of them are going to say, I'll go somewhere else if you make me come back into that office all week. I'm not doing it. Joni mentions, you know, the cost of commuting. And even as that cost comes down, there's the personal cost to it, the time and the discomfort. I mean, we are known for our traffic. Um, Our public transportation is not strong enough to allow everybody to, you know, sit and read or drink coffee on their, their commute. I just, I think that no matter how, how low gas prices go, you're still going to have a lot of people who say, I just don't want to sit in traffic and I can be a better employee. I can get more done working remotely. I do think we might see some change as we get into September because, you know, summer's a chaotic time for families and, you know, being able to be home to do pickups from camp or, you know, let the kids play outside might be a slightly different uh, calculus than once they're in school. But I, I do think that we all had to invest a lot in learning how to work remotely. So, you know, I couldn't wait to go back to the office in, you know, April 2020. Uh, now that I've figured out a way to be productive and to communicate and all our systems are based around working remotely, I'm maybe less in a hurry, although I do sometimes go in. And so uh, I've been reading about how some European companies are offering a pay cut to, to employees uh, in exchange for remote work. And I'm wondering, Jonathan, if you think that's the next battle that we will fight here in the U.S. or here in Washington? I think one of the things we might see from employers who really want their people to go back to work and don't want to make it a little bit less comfortable to stay home is surveillance technology. There's a good story recently about um how large companies are uh, in- installing basically uh, laptop tracking, um, like uh, literally taking a picture of you in front of your screen every like 15 minutes, wow. people paying by like the 10 minute increment if you have uh, keyboard or mouse use. And there's hacks of that, like there's things called mouse jigglers. So you can uh, install <laughs> something on your mouse or to have it like jiggle every once in a while to show activity. Um, That's I just do so think that, creepy, by the way. I know, I know, I know. That's why I brought it up. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there's a tremendous incentive for having employers to have their people at work. And I understand the value of working from home. I'm doing that right now. Um, but um we see in professions like ours, like in journalism, which is a collaborative profession, we're talking to, um, I manage a team of reporters and talk to them about how um, we should be in mixing the, you know, like the, the spontaneous uh, collaborative collaboration and inspiration that comes with. Um, How's that with, going for you, Jonathan? Is it working? 
Um, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I would, I would say that we probably are getting most of the people in the newsroom in a day or two a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's certainly going to be a whole group of large, large group of people that are never going to come back unless they're required to. But there's commercial real estate leases involved here too. There's, there's real skin in the game for employers to be making hard decisions about the office. I think at some point we're going to see in the next year or so, like really you have to fish or cut bait on whether you're going to have an office, assume there's going to be a return of something like um, pre-pandemic. We're never going to go fully back, but, um, you know, commercial real estate leases are on long cycles. So um, you can see Paul Roberts, our, our business reporter, did a story recently about real estate leases, and they're starting to come up and um, real, really kind of blood in the water for commercial real estate uh, in downtown Seattle. So, um, yeah, I I think, I suspect there's going to be a gradual rise over time of people coming back into the office, at least partially. Um, mm-hmm. Never back to that level, but there's too many incentives to not have it just sort of drift there as a employer perspective. Yeah. I'm wondering if like who has more uh, of a hand here? Is it the employer or is it the employee? Right now there's a shortage of employees, so I would assume that they have a little bit more bargaining chips so to speak here, but I wonder if that will uh, change moving forward. Well, that yeah, probably ab- de- absolutely absolutely. That, Go ahead. That Jeff. probably depends on if there's a recession and if people get laid off, but at this point the workers, as you're pointing out, have the upper hand mm-hmm. because they can get jobs that are remote. I mean, I interviewed some folks about a year ago for a story for um, Bloomberg and this one <laughs> uh, woman engineer who I never named. So I got to be careful here, um, told me flat out she's she loves working at home. It's the number one perk for her. She has anxiety around her um, colleagues and, and um, worked for Amazon and said, hey, they make me come back. I'm out of here. I'm and had offers from plenty of places. So you have to watch COVID, I think, and you have to watch um, the unemployment rate, right? Uh, and in and in various fields. Yeah. And as Jonathan pointed out, I mean, not you know, Amazon might be making decisions about their buildings on a very large scale, but smaller businesses might, at a certain point, see the cost savings of not renewing a business, uh, a commercial lease. And you know, you talked about people taking a pay cut to stay at home. Well, if it ends up saving a company money, I I do think that you'll see that in some instances where, you know, companies will no longer have a central location necessarily. I think the hybrid model is probably here to stay just because we've all learned how much more productive we can be in some instances. But, you know, as I said, if, if we, if the power shifts a little bit towards employers and they want to, they'll be able to sort of force people to do it. So I'm curious about when it comes to uh, specifically in Seattle and downtown Seattle, uh, does any of, of this have to do with crime downtown or are we just using it as a convenient excuse? Allison, do you want to take that one? You know, uh, I think it's hard anytime anyone uses crime as a sort of broad reason for anything. We don't always know what they're even talking about. Are they talking about people getting mugged in the streets? Are they talking about shootings that are happening in at night um, among people who are living down there? Are they talking about just, I see a lot of trash and drug use on the streets and I equate that with crime. So I don't, I do think that people have gotten a little distanced from downtown maybe, and they've uh, it's, it's a little easier to imagine the dangers of it when you're just not there a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, I have been going to Pioneer Square a lot lately. I'm not sure why various errands keep taking me down there. And I keep being really impressed with the, the sort of street life that I'm seeing down there, restaurants open and I'm in summer. So, you know, you have people out on patios and stuff, but I, I have been really sort of relieved to see that part of downtown doing, I think, pretty decent. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I'm always suspicious anytime someone uses crime very simply to explain behavior. Right. Yeah. Anything well, else? There, yeah, there could ahead, also John. be a difference between summer and fall on that because um, tourism is, is really big in Seattle this summer. Uh, something like uh, Seattle hotels in downtown core had the highest occupancy rate of any city last week. Hmm. Uh, And I, you know, just millions of tourists going through here and people on the street makes people feel safer. We know that Uh, what happens when they go home. I'm not sure about that. Um, 
you know, but there have been some steps taken by the Bruce Harrell administration. And it's obviously very controversial. People don't like it, uh, but then they do like it. You know, so uh, dozens and dozens of tents have been uh, removed. It's, it's hard to find them now as much as you did before. Uh, I believe there's some um, tent encampment removal along with some placing of some of the homeless folks in um, some kind of housing going on in, in uh, the International District right now, actually. Uh, you know, but downtown is, has not recovered, not by any stretch. It's very tenuous. It's just benefiting from all the money and the people in tourism and some of the folks coming back to work some days because just there's strength in those numbers. Uh, but it's tenuous. We still have plenty of shootings and, you know, street crime, street disorder. We don't have that down yet. Yeah. We do not. Jonathan, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, go ahead. there's def- definitely an optics problem for downtown employers. Um, my colleague, Danny Westing, had another piece this week um, about a large bank, Home Street Bank downtown, that, that the CEO was talking about really the a tremendous difficulty in getting people to come back into downtown. Um, you know, the I agree with what Allison's, Allison's take that like having a broad brush of crime is 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 oversimplistic. Um, it's certainly true that people equate um, visible homelessness and crime, and uh, the Harrell administration has been much more actively managing tent camps, uh, which, frankly, going back to Jody's point about Biden, he said he was going to do this, and he is. Um, so I am. I think that that is helping with the optics problem, but it really only takes uh, one random violent mugging that gets a headline and gets mm-hmm. a TV coverage to scare people uh, about um, coming back into downtown. Uh, my wife has worked at 4th and Union for throughout the pandemic, um, really went in a lot, and has she's really seen how that area was in the deep pandemic, really pretty terrifying. Um, there was really no, because there was nobody on the street, and there was obvious disorder, and it was just a perception of her as a woman coming out in the street and not feeling safe. Um, it's gotten much more, it feels like it's gotten much more ordered, uh, and there's less of that optics problem. But the Seattle still has tremendous problems, including, you know, they're down what 300 officers i believe from Closer their, their budgeted yeah. 400 yeah. yeah budgeted staffing level um having just a nightmare scenario trying to recruit people and bring people in and um so um yeah i i like i said i i do think the pressure is so high for, to bring people back downtown employers are going to figure out how to do that by hook or by crook um hopefully not installing <laughs> surveillance software on our on our work issue laptops um but i i suspect it's going to uh, ease back to just somewhat higher levels we are now yeah, just tie your mouse mm-hmm. to like your dog's paw or something like that <laughs> right right google mouse jiggler yeah. <laughs> i think i think my dog is quiet quitting he's uh <laughs> sleeping the, the day away <laughs> but can i can um, i just add one thing yeah go the, ahead the perception the optics whatever you want to call it your wife's own impression all of that is real for a company that has some percentage of its employees saying, you know, I don't feel safe coming back and I'm not coming back. And until, and, you know, remember the, uh, a while ago, Weyerhaeuser wouldn't even reopen its offices until its employees felt better in Pioneer Square. And then something happened and I actually don't know what it was, but they said, okay, we'll, we'll bring some back some of the days, or maybe it's all the days. I don't really know the status of that, but it's real for companies if their employees won't come in for that. Right. And there were many that said that. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you see, you know, when you don't have the office workers in there, you don't have uh, businesses coming into the retail spaces. I mean, there's a lot of empty retail spots. And I think it's I, I know the nothing makes you feel more unsafe in a city with no people on the streets and right. boarded up windows next to you and, you know, not seeing, you know, retail workers and that flow of commerce. So it, it, it can snowball, you know, when if the office workers aren't coming in, you're not going to get new retail to replace some of the, the shuttered right. stuff. All right, we're going to leave this one here for now. We're going to take another uh, quick break, and we'll be back with more on the Week in Review. (music) 
Welcome back to the Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid. I'm in for Bill Radke today. And with me today are the investigations editor from the Seattle Times, Jonathan Martin, political analyst and contributing columnist, Joni Balter, and deputy editor for Seattle Met Magazine, Allison Williams. All right. Zeke's Pizza is back in the news, and it has nothing to do with their delicious pies. The Seattle-based pizza chain will pay delivery drivers about $409,000 after allegedly failing to disclose how much of its delivery charge was paid to drivers. And I say they're back in the news because they agreed to pay 257 drivers $285,000 back in 2019 for the same issue. So service charges are really common these days. They're allowed, but companies need to disclose how much of that charge is going to employees serving customers. Apparently, Zeke's didn't do that. If the company doesn't make clear that it retains a portion of that charge, that charge must be paid to employees serving customers. So uh, aside from my horrible dad joke, we can put that one aside about the delicious pies. Uh, Do you (laughs) do any of you pay attention to the charges uh, on your bill? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, you, you see it, we saw it sometimes during the pandemic and it was understandable that, you know, businesses were trying to stay afloat and needed to, to do some surcharges, but they've stayed. And I think it confuses people who are saying, if, okay, if you're retaining a part of this, should I tip a little bit on top of this? Is this my 20% tip? If it's that high, mm-hmm. if it's a 6% surcharge, should I be tipping 14%? I, I do think that it, it it's confusing for the customer and then they come around feeling like I paid so much more than what it said on the menu and I don't feel great about that. I I don't know that I really see the reason for doing that mm-hmm. when you could just increase the prices on your menu. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems that more people are tipping with the idea that they learned during COVID, so many lessons from COVID, uh, with the idea of paying their share to that frontline worker who, uh, you know, has relatively poor pay and they still take risks as COVID ebbs and flows. And so I think it sounds like Zeke's really messed up. They should be telling people this. They are sort of creating an environment where fewer people will tip because they think that the companies aren't handling it right. Uh, And I do find the charges on if if it's Instacart or restaurants, delivery apps, there's so many weird charges on there. You can't tell which which is the one I thought I was paying. Mm -hmm. And if it's not going to the people that that we think we're helping, then that's not a good development. Um, And so people will tip less if that happens. Right. I was looking at my receipt from an order I placed with Grubhub, and I I found four line items in addition to the food (laughs) prices. It was the sales tax, which is normal, a delivery fee, a service fee, and a tip. And so all of a sudden, a bill of $27 turns into 43. And it seems that companies are, I don't know, kind of milking this. What do you think, Jonathan? (laughs) If you want to get a story that we call a talker uh, and a high level of engagement with readers, do a story about tipping. Um, Everybody's got an opinion. And um, I I think that, um, you know, and there's the the coverage of of tipping has been gotten interesting, too, because workers are definitely more um, more active about pushing back about abusive uh, tipping procedures by employers or questionable ones. There's a group of employees that just walked out of a uh, swanky uh, Capitol Hill restaurant called Barrio, just suddenly walked out because they didn't like the tip pooling uh, method. Um, I see now tip tip lines for uh, even it seems like grocery. So you see like somebody's basically just ringing you up and there's an optional tip for that. So I think people develop their own tipping philosophies. Like for me, I think if they're actually actively creating my food or drink, I will tip. Um, But uh, I would say too that, um, you know, there is a really vigorous enforcement structure, unusually vigorous enforcement structure in Seattle for tipping. The Office of Labor Standards in Seattle is active. It's got a bunch of cases uh, that it publishes on the site. Um, So uh, as a journalist, I always think about sort of where these stories are sort of playing into narratives and I know people really care. I also think this is a, a topic that labor organizers want to keep in the want to keep in the uh, the news and uh, keep in kind of uh, for for labor organizing um, uh, reasons. Uh, and not to say that people who are have tips denied them are being you know they're whining or something. I I totally get that. I've got two kids that are both in uh, in tipping uh, jobs, so. Uh, 
but I do think that we do we've gotten, gotten a much better job about policing uh, uh, abusive tipping procedures from employers um, and um, and anyway that's all I got to say on that all right well and then you look at the fact that I mean it, it used to be one surefire way of making sure that the money was going to the person that you wanted it to was mm-hmm. handing them cash you know deliveries I used to anytime I got things delivered I just do not have cash anymore uh, my grocery store was where I used to get cash out and they charge now for doing cash withdrawals and I just use it so little uh, since the pandemic that I don't have cash around and I think that used to be the easy surefire way of being like I I know where this is going and we just most of us don't have that anymore so we we only have about five more minutes here, and I really want to squeeze in this story because I love sports and I like to love to talk <laughs> talk about this. So again, just a, a few more minutes here. But uh, Jamal Crawford, um, so he's a really good basketball player. He's from Seattle. He went to Rainier Beach High School. He played all over the NBA. He played for the Clippers, the Knicks, the Bulls. He played for Portland for a year, and every year he puts on this event called the Crossover, which is a rebrand of the Seattle Pro Am, a competitive men's basketball summer league in Seattle, featuring top current and former professional and collegiate players. Now, this year was really special because some of the biggest NBA names were participating. LeBron James, DeJounte Murray, Jason Tatum, uh, uh, Gonzaga star Chet Holmgren, who now plays for the Thunder. Uh, But a lot went wrong here, and the event was free, and it was played at a gym in Seattle Pacific University. Fans lined up the night before, and by the morning, we had a line about a mile long. Uh, So some mayhem ensued with fans trying to get in, and the game itself had to be called off after just a quarter and a half because of slippery conditions on the floor, because of the humidity. So anyway, what I'm getting to here is that despite all this mayhem, there's a combination of what we saw with this event and uh, the storms selling out their games, uh, is that um, suggesting that we still have this sports void by not having an NBA team? Yes. Yes. (laughs) We all agree. Yes. The role of celebrity here, I mean, Sue Bird is a, you know, possibly the best women's basketball player to have played, and she's well-known around here. Uh, You know, LeBron James, part of that, that, like, huge, huge effect is those individual celebrities. And, but I do think underlying that we do have the hunger for seeing those sports. I mean, I'm super excited. I don't know if you heard, there is going to be a women's sports bar opening up in Ballard later this year. There's already one in Portland and uh, someone announced they're going to be opening it up here. And I think that you're going to, we're, we're excited. We're, we're going to fill those, those spaces, but yeah, we could use a basketball team. Even I don't even like pro basketball, but we could use one. (laughs) So, uh, I, you know, we're talking about the Storm. And by the way, they play uh, top-seeded Las Vegas uh, this weekend um, in the playoffs. And uh, Sue Bird is going to retire at the end of the season after 19 seasons, 19 amazing seasons in Seattle. Uh, Sports Illustrated uh, said that she is the most impactful athlete in the history of Seattle sports. Does anyone want to refute that? I wouldn't refute it. I'd just say maybe top Three because I, I'm not going to go forget about Ken Griffey, and I hope this isn't too Ken soon Griffey for many have of any you. Russell Wilson, um, Russell Wilson, you has know, won. so top three. She's amazing, <laughs> and Jonathan. And he probably wants to say what he wants to say about statues. Go ahead. I mean, I've, you got to put Superd mm-hmm. the Superd statue outside a client pledge first thing. Like yeah. she's, I think she's arguably the most successful. She's probably the most successful athlete in Seattle sports history. Um, Olympic gold medals, um, you know, the uh, multiple WNBA championships, Player of the Year, All Star, All Star, All Star. Um, and I, I liked the the uh, Greg Bishop piece in Sports Illustrated quoting Jeff Ament, the uh, the uh, Pearl Jam. Um, uh, and he said it was like a perfect, she's a perfect fit for Seattle. She's out and proud and, and gay. She's liberal, but in political when necessary, but uh, an outspoken on social justice. She's accomplished. She's driven, relatable, authentic, distinct, mm-hmm. like a genre of one. Like, um, I think that the, the affection for Sue Bird is genuine because she's a genuine star and a genuine person. Yeah, you know, Joni, I'll I'll definitely uh, give you Griffey, but I will never give you Russell Wilson because I knew that was going to be tough. The back I was nervous about that me. one. <laughs> with the with the feelings in this town at the moment. Yeah. At the moment, it's yeah. like one more thing. Yeah. Um, I I went to the crossover tournament uh, a couple years ago. Watched uh, Chet Holmgren take on uh, 
the uh, UW team. Um, it's really too bad that Jamal Crawford's event went sideways yeah. with with basically a flood of popularity. But give the guy credit. I mean, this is a this is a free event where he's drawing the biggest names in the world to come here and just play for fun. He got swamped by basically a lack, like over enthusiasm mm-hmm. for what he was doing. But I think it's too bad to have the logistical failings, which I assume they're going to take care of for next year, right. over swamp the 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 um, the absolute enthusiasm. That why I biked by that line in the morning, and it would the line stretched for over a mile from. Mm-hmm. Um, from the SPU gym. And what that tells me is we want an NBA team here. There's a lot of billionaires in this city. Like we got it. We got an arena now. Come on, folks, step up, get us an NBA team. There you go. And make Sue Bird the GM. So that's, that's my pitch right there. <laughs> so we're going to do one more thing. We just got two more minutes here and we always want to leave our audiences with something to smile about. Right. So, um, so we want to ask what is making you smile. I'm going to really quickly give this plug because I'm so incredibly excited for this. The new Netflix show, Mo, is making me so happy. This is a show created and starring a Palestinian-American comic, Mo Amer, or for my uh, Arab brothers and sisters, Muhammad Mustafa Amer. What an incredible feeling it is to see the artistic work of Arab Americans being celebrated in mainstream American media uh, in such a positive way. Uh, I am over the moon. Uh, I, too, am a Palestinian-American. So uh, that's what's making me smile. Um, okay, we got uh, one minute left here. Uh, Allison, what's making you smile? Well, this morning I opened up my phone weather app and I went, ooh, is it going to rain today? And it didn't say it was going to rain, but there was the chance. And I hadn't done that in a while, that like excited look for the little clouds and rain. Oh, come on. This was the best summer ever, or at least in recent memory. You know, one gorgeous, clear sky day after another. I mean, I think this has been amazing. I swam like 20 times already. And I love the warm nights. And also uh, Mariners outfielder Julio Rodriguez is finalizing a deal with the Mariners for zillions. And for 14 years. So uh, we got him for a while. Jonathan, last word. Uh, Fresh hop beer season is right around the corner. A very unique Seattle Northwest tradition as the home of uh, the hop hop industry. Looking forward to uh, uh, raising a glass soon. All right. Here's a glass to all of you. Thank you very much for listening to the Week in Review. And thank you folks for being with me today on KUW-FM Seattle, KUW-Tumwater, and KQOW-Bellingham. Our panelists today, Jonathan Martin, Joni Balter, and Allison Williams. Uh, Week in Review is produced by Kevin Kniestead, social media and streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Kim Shepard is running the board. Thanks for that uh, Elvis uh, earlier on. And thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Zeki Hamid. Please be kind to each other and have an excellent day. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.